Heather. Good morning, everyone. So, yes, I am wearing slippers. Um, that's, by the way, what we call them in Hawaii. I don't know why you call them flip-flops. They're slippers. Uh, but as soon as I'm done preaching here, I'm actually part of the team, and they're all waiting for me in the parking lot. So as soon as I'm done, I'm walking out the back, jumping in a van, and driving for six hours out to Arizona. So I wanted to be as comfortable as possible. So that's with the slippers. Uh, I was actually thinking of wearing board shorts like Tim, but, you know, I'm not quite as adventurous, so. Well, last week, uh, we began laying the foundations of our series, Great, The Grace of Life, looking at marriage, planting the seeds of a marriage that matters, and, and we talked about the foundation, and this week, we're going to continue to do the same, and next week, we're going to finish some of our foundational work uh, as we talk about the roles of husbands and wives. But before we do that, we wanted to talk about this morning um, in your sermon bulletin, we called it What is Marriage Part 2? That's a mistake because we, I changed my mind last at the end of the week. And, and really the sermon title is the, the Gospel at the Center of Your Marriage. And the reason I thought we should shift that a little bit was that uh, we need to understand as I think the gospel is the link in so many things. And so last week we talked about the foundation of marriage, right? And we talked about those foundations being it's a marriage in essence is a covenant, it's a fellowship, and it's a witness. But before jumping right into what does that look like in the way we live, we need to link those two. And I thought the gospel is the, link, the, the thing that links everything in the Christian life, and that's probably pretty important. So before just jumping into application, we wanted to talk about, well, how do these things work together? What the, the principles of what a marriage is and what they look like in husbands and wives, it all comes back down to the gospel. Now, if you were here last week, I said, look, whether or not you're married, this series has application to you on a number of levels, right? Uh, if you're paying attention, even last week, if you were really paying attention, some of those elements of what makes a marriage work, or, or when you really get down to it, they're just things that make relationships work, and, and that's not by accident. I'm going to unpack that even more thoroughly in two weeks. But and the same goes for this morning. Even though we are talking about marriage and, and the gospel being centered of the marriage, the reality is the gospel has got to be at the center of every relationship, and I think as we unpack that this morning, it'll become clear to you why. And so I, I think two things are important, so I want to step back, instead of jumping right into husbands and wives, talk about the importance of the role of the gospel. Now, I recognize not everyone was here last week, so let me just briefly uh, recap what we talked about, because as I said, those themes of permanence and participation and purpose really run through all of our lives and through all, all the messages in this series. Talked about the essence, or when the Bible talks about marriage, that, that there's some constituent parts to it. There's a, there's a thingness to marriage. It's not up for us to decide whatever we want. Right? We talked about that. It's not just a social construct. It's not something we design and make up like, like a stoplight at a traffic sign. We decide what red means or green means. Marriage is not like that. There's an objectiveness to marriage. And we talked about it that, number one, it has, it's a covenant. And we talked about covenant as so important because covenant brings permanence to the marriage relationship. If, if a, the marriage covenant is the, the by bringing together of two sinners in God's unique redemptive work, they need a kind of guarantee that when their sin is manifested, the partner's not going to bail. The husband and wife is not going to bail on them, but they're going to stick it out through thick and thin. That no matter what, come hell or high water, this relationship is a permanent relationship. Lori and I celebrated 21 years of marriage a couple months ago, and, and early on in our marriage, we made a promise to each other. 
We made a vow that we would never use the D word in our relationship. Every other word was fair game, but we could not use the D word, you know. And in 21 years of marriage, you know, my wife has never even hinted, and this is to her great credit, she has never hinted of even divorcing me, not, not even alluded to it, right? But, I mean, she's hinted at killing me and all that other stuff, but <laughs> she's never said, I will divorce you, ever. I'll kill you numerous times, but that was just a strong sense of permanence in our marriage relationship that was so important. It's not just covenant, though, but it's also a, a fellowship, right? And a particular kind of fellowship. It's, it's a, a fellowship of sanctification, where, where my sinfulness and her sinfulness is being exposed, there's this covenant permanence that we're not going to bail on each other, and that allows the fellowship, the participation in becoming like Jesus to take place. Because I know no matter what gets put on the table, she's not going to leave. Whatever I find out about her, she's not going to leave, and we're going to work through it together. Remember, a couple years into our marriage, and it, it, uh, it might have been six years into our marriage, I remember distinctly laying in bed and I was laying like on my stomach, and she was on her, on her back, and, and I remember saying, babe, I feel that I bump up against my, I mean, lack of a better way to say it, I just, I'm like relationally constipated. I, I can't seem to connect. I, I just don't know how to get beyond this, you know? And, and, and I said to her, and one of God's reasons for our marriages, I think you you got to help me be some be better at connecting, at loving, and just relating, because that doesn't come easy to me. And she was like, yeah, you're pretty constipated in relationships. You're, you're, you're pretty emotionally dumb, dunce, you know, you're, you know. And I remember looking at her and said, I said, I'm so sorry that it has to be you, right? That, that has to help me be that thing, but I'm also glad that it's, that it's you. And, 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 and that's because there was that sense that, that we're in this together. She's helping me be like Jesus and all the good and the bad. And so part of marriage is it's a fellowship of participation, but it's a specific participation. It's not just having fun and having kids and family vacations. It's about becoming like Jesus. It's about sanctification. And, and if you don't know that word, sanctification is the word that basically theologians use to describe the progressive process in our thoughts, actions, and feelings of becoming more like Jesus Christ, set apart from the world and set apart for God's purposes. So a marriage has a covenant that no matter what, we will be together. So that when all the junk comes up, when, when our inabilities and immaturities get to the surface, we're working through them together to be like Jesus Christ. So that's a covenant, it's a, it's a fellowship, but it's also a witness that we recognize that because of this process of trying to become like Jesus Christ, there is a purpose for our marriage beyond the both of us. And that's really important, that that purpose is directly and distinctly a God-oriented, God-centered, and God-glorifying purpose as we display together the way our Lord relates that as God the Father exercises a judicious love and direction over the Son, and God the Son exercises a glad-hearted submission to the Father's direction, Lori and I, in our marriage, we are working together to, to signify and point out that's how our God works. And so there's a witness, so regardless of how 
even if it doesn't work out well for us, we realize there's more at stake than our own personal fulfillment. There's more at stake than whether or not we feel compatible anymore. There's more at stake than whether or not we're enjoying the marriage as much as we, we once were when we first married or that we're living up to our vows. There's much more at stake because we are a witness to something else. Now, that, that's what we talked about, and the reality is when you think about it, all three have to work together, right? That, that th- this, this is not like you can have one or two. They all work together. That because there's a covenant, because there's a permanence there, it allows the participation of working through our, our shortcomings and our sin, quite frankly. And because there's that fellowship of becoming like Jesus, there is a great witness to the Lord and what He's doing. And without, without, if you take one of these out, the marriage ceases to be what a marriage is supposed to be. Like if there's no sense of permanence, if there's no sense that my wife is not going to leave me, I'm less likely to, to be honest and reveal myself with her, right? Like a counseling principle we teach here in our counseling classes is that, um, uh, what's, what's the principle? <laughs> Revel- oh, you're not going to reveal yourself if you don't feel safe. Right? If people, people, and this is true, by the way, in marriages and life, if you don't feel safe, you're not going to reveal yourself. You know what I mean. If you feel like you're going to get laughed at or people are going to make fun of you or they won't accept you, you're not going to reveal what's going on in your life. And so, so you kind of have an image that you hide behind because you don't want people to know the real you because you're afraid they'll reject you. But when there's this permanence that no matter what, she won't leave you or leave you, you know, she won't, you won't be left, that allows for that kind of fellowship, Right? Yeah, you might have. Somebody check their phone. Let's all check our phones because somebody's phone's going off. <laughs> there we go. Thank you. All right. Now, if there's no particip- so so if there's cov- no covenant, there's no there's no permanence. There's no participation. If there's no participation, to be more like Jesus Christ. The witness of the marriage it, it, at at worst, the witness is this that there's real no hope for genuine change in this world because if two people who voluntarily promise to love each other till death do they part can't even work it out, then what hope is there for anyone, right? So at worst, that's the witness, that there's no hope in this world. At best, if there's not a a witness understanding the witness God has for us, at best, our witness, it might be of a good marriage, but it won't point to anything other than you two are good people for staying married together. It's not going to point to the redemptive power of the gospel to make people like Jesus and work through the hard things of life. And so if there's no witness of that, right, if there's no inbuilt witness, if the marriage doesn't point to something beyond them, why, bo- why bother the covenant aspect? If marriage is just about us, and it doesn't work out the way we want, why don't we just leave it if it doesn't work out, right? So my point is simply, all these elements have to work together for marriages to continue, to, for that foundation to be there. That's what we talked about last week. Um, I'm just looking at my notes and realizing I got off page, so I have no idea where we're at. Um, but here's the problem. Uh, the problem is, even in the best of circumstances, right, marriage is hard, Right? Even in the best of situations, marriages are difficult. You don't have to look further than the first two pages of the Bible. 
You go to Genesis chapter 3, and what do you see? I mean, you, you see the first married couple, right? And, and they're like on their dream honeymoon. They're both naked in a garden, and it's fantastic, right? So this is like fantastic. This is the epitome that we have the expression. It's like Eden. They lived in Eden. But yet even there, sin crept in, and things went horribly sideways. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, there, they sin against God, and then Adam denies responsibility and then blames God and his wife, right? And then his wife, not to be outdone, blames the serpent and then pulls the victim card. So even in the best of situations, the Garden of Eden, marriage, they turn on each other. They throw each other under the bus. They're no longer protecting one another. They're trying to expose one another. Marriage is hard, right? It's just a reality in a fallen world. But notice immediately as this marriage, this first marriage goes sideways, God foreshadows, and we'll look at it in a little bit, God foreshadows the answer not only to fix their marriage, but the answer that fixes everything. This is what, this is what theologians call the proto-gospel. In other words, the very first a mention of the gospel, the shadowing of the gospel, Genesis 3.15, and the Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring. So he's talking already at the get-go that this whole world's going to be divided by two types of people, those who are of the offspring of rebellion against God and those who are going to do things God's way. And he, then he kind of like personalizes it. And he, speaking of the offspring of the woman, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is called the proto-gospel, that right there, the moment sin enters the world and this marriage starts to go sideways, God gives a hint of what's going to save, not just their marriage, but everything, and he's giving an indication, a foreshadowing that there's going to be a redeemer, a rescuer that comes. So here is my premise this morning, if you're the kind of people that want it front and center, here's my premise. Having the gospel at the center of your marriage enables you. It's the thing that makes you build into your marriage those elements of, of covenant, of fellowship, of witness. It gives you the ability to have that permanence, that participation, to understand the purpose of your marriage. That gospel does that when it's at the center of your marriage, and it does that for two reasons. It can do this for two reasons. Number one, it orients your heart correctly, and number two, it trains you to love the way you should, okay? This is why having the gospel at the center of your marriage is so critical because it orients you in your behaviors, right? It trains you in your heart. Now, by the way, notice this is true of every relationship, isn't it? It's not just true between husband and wives, but the uniqueness of marriage is that that beautiful family unit is the first arena where God's glory in redeeming us is worked out, right? E either that's, that's where the glory begins or the pain starts is in the marriage. So we got to talk about that. So let's look at them one at a time. The gospel orients us correctly. Here's a phrase that is very familiar to you, that we are sinners in need of grace. Now, just to be clear, and if you've been at CCC long enough, you, you should know this, but when I say gospel, right, when I say gospel, I don't just simply mean the simple gospel message that you may have heard as a child in Sunday school, 
right? I don't just mean that God in his love and his glory created all creation and put image bearers in the garden so we might bask in his goodness and grace and enjoy relationship with him, but because of our foolishness, we rebelled against him in sin and have been rebelling against him all this time, but because of his love and mercy, he sends a redeemer, he sends his rescuer, he sends his son to live the perfect life that we should but don't and die the death we should but don't and all of us who repent of our sins and see Jesus Christ as that salvation will receive mercy and be reconciled to God. I don't just mean that. That's a little story that kids in a different way could tell you from our Sunday school class. I mean something so much more. When I say gospel, I don't just mean the simple message. I don't just mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four books in the Bible, right? I don't mean the ABCs of the Christian faith, and once you got that, you go on to the more advanced stuff, like maybe the book of Revelation, right, for example. I mean by the gospel, a way of seeing the world from a distinctly God-oriented way, the way God sees the world. I mean a worldview that is critical. I mean a pair of glasses by which we see everything. And I think it's summed up in that expression, sinners in need of grace. Number one, sinners, this is, this is what the Bible says we are. It's the definition of what humanity is. And the Bible says that humanity, because of its sin, is completely wrecked, desperate, wrong, deformed. I am unable, I am unwilling, I am unloving. And I don't just mean I. I mean all of us, right? That's what we are. I am self-focused in my self-esteem. I am self-centered in my self-care. I'm self-absorbed in my self-protection. As a sinner, life is about me. I am a me monster. Everything is about me, and if you do anything against me in my world, watch out because you'll get the monster. And that's what the Bible means. I mean, I could throw up a bunch of verses to show you, but this is in general what the Bible means by being a sinner. If you cut me off in traffic, you'll see it. If you take my seat in church, you will see it. If you bother me, if you annoy me, if you bug me, ignore me. If you look at me the wrong way or don't look at me at all, in short, if you do anything I don't like, you're going to get it. That's what the Bible means by saying we are sinners. And here's what's important, friends. If you don't understand that this is what the Bible talks about, that you are a sinner, you're going to miss a good percentage of the core message of this book. You will begin to see Christianity as just a moral system of do's and don'ts, rules we got to follow so we can change our behavior, because what does it mean to be a sinner? Well, you drink too much, you cuss too much, you sleep too much, you sleep around too much. Now, those are sinful, get me, don't get me wrong, but there's a reason we do those things, because I'm trying to satisfy something in me, and that's why I do these things. I am a me monster, and that's what the Bible means by being a sinner. And we are living in a world with about 8 billion other of these me monsters. And when you push my agenda forward, guess what? You and I are going to be friends. But when you get in my way, guess what? You and I are now enemies. So everyone's an enemy or friend dependent upon how they advance what? Me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity. Right? That's what the Bible means when it says we are a sinner. And if you're married, you promise to live your life with one of these. 
right? And if you're not married and you want to be, that's what you're getting connected to, right? I'm just being honest here. That's why we have that book, When Sinners Say I Do, that's what marriage is, right? These two coming together. That's the, that's the definition. Now, here's our situation. We are sinners in need, right? This is like the most abused word in our culture, right? So, let's be clear on what need means. A need means you require something essential without which something critical cannot happen, The Merriam-Webster online dictionary defines a need as a condition or situation requiring supply or relief, something that must be done. So when it comes to marriage, friends, what are we in need of? Quality time, acts of service, physical touch, gifts, right? You guys may be familiar with the five love languages. Maybe it's good communication skills. Techniques to manage our conflict, better parenting tools, more consistent date nights, a more understanding spouse, compatibility maybe, personal space. Now, I'm I'm not making fun of those. Certainly, most of those cannot hurt, right? But given the Bible's definition of what we are, do you really think any of these or even all of these is what your marriage needs to be successful if you haven't changed the fundamental reality that you are a me monster? Friends, I've been, I've been counseling married people for three decades, okay? And here's what I've learned. If the fundamental reality that you are a me monster has not been changed, you will use every skill, every technique, everything you learn to manipulate situations to better serve yourself. That's what happens. So you'll learn communication skills and and outwit people who don't have them so that they can serve better your purposes. You you will finagle and manipulate situations so they serve you rather than serving your wife or your husband. Now, I put up on the book spot a bunch of books on marriage that I found were really helpful. There are other books I haven't put up there that are very helpful, but there's a, one, there's a problem with them, right? They all push what I call a need theory. Some of those books are um, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Good book. Um, an older one, His Needs, Her Needs, right? Um, and then there was a more recent bestseller called Love and Respect, right? Now, I've read all these books. I like them, and I think they come from a Christian perspective. And if you're trying to work on your marriage, I could recommend those to you as well with one caveat. I want you to be careful of this need theory that is permeating so much of the therapeutic literature on marriage and relationships. What I mean by the need theory, here's the problem with it. The need theory normally devolves into some form of determinism, okay? So, um, love and respect. It's, It's sold 5 million copies, 6 million copies. It's a huge one. Generally like it, but the need theory goes like this. If wives don't give the respect their husbands need, they will get on the crazy cycle, right? And they list all these things that husbands do to get respect. And if husbands don't give wives the love they need, they go on this crazy cycle, and then they list all these things women do to get that love, okay? In the book, His Needs, Her Needs, it says, if you don't fulfill these needs, the the more these needs you don't fulfill, the greater the chance of an affair, The problem with all these, it's saying that if you don't meet this need, this automatically is the resulting consequence. Here's a problem with that. That's exactly the opposite of what the Bible teaches. Jesus rarely had these needs met, if ever. And yet he loved sacrificially. He gave abundantly. 
and he was generous with all around him. And his needs were never met. I'm not saying don't fulfill needs, but I'm saying be careful of this theory that's going through our culture that if you don't get your needs met, this is what you have to do or what you will do because that's clearly not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible does teach a need theory that you need God. You need rescue. You need truth. The other problem with the need theory is that it it moves the, the object of blame. So the theory goes like this. If this spouse fails to provide this spouse's needs, then this spouse who didn't get their needs met will commit certain sins, the determinism, and this spouse is to blame. In other words, if I don't meet my wife's needs, she's more justified to act out in certain ways. But that makes me responsible for her behavior, and that's not what the Bible teaches either. Let me put it to you this way. My sin does not make my wife's sin not a sin. In other words, if I fail to meet her needs, it doesn't justify her behavior to respond however she wants as if now it's okay because I failed to meet her needs. Does that make sense? Here's another way to say it. Two wrongs don't make a right. Two wrongs do not make a right. If your spouse fails to meet a need, and that might be sin, that sin does not justify your sinful response. Does that make sense? My wife's sin doesn't make my sin not a sin. I can't control how she's going to behave, but I can control how I will behave. And that's the general problem I have with some of these need theories. And a lot of them, his needs, her needs, love and respect, five love languages. Again, good books. Just be aware of this. It makes it say that if I meet your need, you will love me better. Does anybody see a problem with that idea? Because the Bible teaches me to love you regardless of how you will respond to me. It's not about meeting your need so you can meet my need. It's about meeting your need because God called me to do so. Something very important. Okay, so we know the definition of what a sinner is. We know what the situation is. And now let's look at the provision. What can change the me monster? The Bible says that it is grace. So the question we have to ask is, what is grace? Friends, grace, grace is is the pleasure of God to magnify the worth of God by giving sinners the right, the privilege, the power to delight in God without obscuring the glory of God. I know that was a mouthful, but it's true. Friends, grace is the pleasure of God to make much of the worth of God given to sinners like you and I the right, the power, and the privilege to delight in Him without obscuring His glory. That is grace. It takes the focus off of me, it takes the worship off of me, and it places it on Him, the only one who's worthy and deserving of that praise and worship. Romans chapter 11, verse 36, I love what Paul says, For from him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be glory forever. Amen. The psalmist David said the same thing, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Grace changes us from being a me monster, a glory thief, trying to bring all the attention and focus on myself and brings it to God. And friends, God is the only one who can bear the weight of that kind of worship and glory. I feel for the celebrities in our culture 
because human beings were not meant to carry the weight of that kind of adoration and praise and worship. And we see lives destructing all the time, right? And that's why I'm a little concerned that that kind of is trickling down in our society. One of my favorite hymns are the anonymous hymns. In a world where everyone's trying to become known, I love that we have hymns that nobody has a clue this side of heaven who wrote those. Because we can't handle praise and glory without it corrupting us. Only God can. And it does us good when we bring that worship to Him. Psalm 25, 11, I love this verse. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Let me ask you a question. Why does God forgive our sins? Answers in that verse. Does God forgive our sins because we're nice enough? Does God forgive our sins because He knows we've learned our lesson and we won't do it again? Does God forgive our sins because, oh, well, it wasn't that big of a sin, so I'll ignore it? No. God pardons our iniquity. He pardons our sin for His name's sake. For the sake of His name and glory, God forgives but not just negatively, look at it positively, Psalm 23, 3. God restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Friends, why does God restore you? Why does God bless you? Is it because you're all that in a bag of chips, right? Is, is, does He do this because you're just beautiful or handsome? Does He do this because He wants to get on your good side? No. Why does God do good to us? For His name's sake. He forgives our sins because He's a glorious God who's merciful. He blesses us because He's a glorious God worthy of all praise and worship. Friends, that is what we need. A radical reorientation. A radical change. A radical rescue from us being me monsters to Him. That's the gospel message. And you know this. If you've been in a church, if you've been at least in this church for at least a year, you know this, that worship of self corrupts everything. Worship of God causes everything to flourish. And it was grace that was given to us to affect this change. And friends, when we know, when you know in the core, I mean in your bones, in your bones, that you are your biggest problem, is your biggest problem. And, and, and I get, we're talking about marriage, and you're living with a me monster. I get it. I'm, I'm counseling, me and the elders are counseling many marriages in this church. We get how hard you are to live with, right? Your spouse, man, whoa, I get it. I get it. But we're all me monsters. And when you understand, even when your spouse sins against you, we so often sinfully respond, and it complexes, makes the situation complex. Right? It's so rare that when a spouse sins against another that the other spouse responds in love and sanctification. We often get sinned against and we sin against them. I get it. But when you get it in your bones that your biggest problem is you and that Jesus Christ came to rescue you from yourself, right? Not your spouse, from yourself and rescue, to, rescue your, you from yourself to himself you start to understand everything more clearly, including your marriage. This is what Paul is getting at. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. 
He has brought us from this me monster kingdom of your own, and he's brought you into his kingdom. Now, this is the orientation, this is the worldview, if you will, of the gospel. Let's talk a little bit about the mechanics of how that works out, how it trains us to love better. But before we do that, you might be sitting there going, yeah, but I understand all this. I still can't get along with my spouse. Or let's broaden the net. The people at my workplace or the, the neighbors in my community. Again, this, all, this applies to all of our lives, but centrally to our marriages. Let me suggest this. Maybe this could be the problem. Thomas Watson, old Puritan preacher, said it, this, said it best. Till sin be bitter, Christ will never be sweet. Till sin be bitter bitter. Christ will never be sweet because morality doesn't satisfy. Rules and do's and don'ts, you will never be able to live up to that until you taste in your mouth and see in your life the destruction of sin, the gospel will mean nothing. You can just be religious. But when you get that Jesus came to rescue me from myself and no longer make me a me monster, and make me a worshiper of him, oh, you, the pieces start to come together. Got a call before I go on. Uh, Lori and I were doing some marriage counseling in my last church, <laughs> off and off with this couple, on and off with this couple for so long. He was an idiot, and she was clueless, right? I and mean, just back and forth, back and forth. And, and we loved them. I mean, we're so proud of them to this day. They are small group leaders, thriving. But I remember in the thick of this, getting a phone call. Let's say her name was Susie. She calls me. Sorry if there's any Susies in here. She calls me and says, Rick, I get it. I've been blaming Roger this whole time. I'm the problem. Now, Roger, like I said, he was an idiot, okay? He had a lot of problems. But what, what Susie was realizing was that his sin against me does not make my sin against him not a sin. And I've been using that as an excuse, not realizing that his sin is exposing my need for grace. But rather than press into grace, I press into my own fleshly ways. I try to get back at him. I'd be passive aggressive. I do all these things. And I don't realize I'm, contri- I'm contributing to this crazy cycle. I'm the problem. And I need grace to deliver me from myself. I said, Susie, I think... I think you're on to something there. I hung up and I called Roger. I said, Roger, do you realize, you realize you're the problem in this relationship, don't you? Right? And God was softening his heart. He says, yeah, Susie's sin doesn't make my sin not a sin. And I got to own that. And granted, it's not like everything turned a corner, but the point was they both came to the realization that they need the gospel more than their spouse does. Of course, when you understand the gospel, you realize both of you need it the most, the, the same. But sin became bitter to them, and the answer became sweet. All right, so how does the gospel train us, empower us? We talk about the gospel at the center of our marriages, and that's because grace is at the center of the gospel. But the reason grace works is because at the center of grace is Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, you could say that grace and Jesus are identical, and that's because Paul says the same thing in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, okay? That's, that's verse 11. It's talking about Christ. But notice verse 12, training us. It trains us. And notice negatively and positively. Negatively, it trains us to renounce ungodliness, right, and worldly passions. So like in the context of marriages, just the, those snarky ways we can treat each other. 
Either you be like the flamethrower and just get all mad and explode, or you do the, the, cold, you know, the, the, the cold freeze and you shut down, don't say anything. Those are passive-aggressive techniques. Rather than speaking the truth in love, to say, that hurt me, can we talk about it? We shut down or we explode. Okay? The, the gospel trains us to renounce that kind of thing negatively, but also the gospel trains us positively, look at that, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and positively to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. And so in the context of family, that could be just, just learning to lead your family to gather. When other God's people gather, that's where you're going to be. Waking up earlier than your spouse, maybe to pray for them or pray for the kids. Learning to serve together in ministry somehow. Doing whatever it can. Doing positive things as a family. And when does all this happen? Right now. In the present age. The gospel, Jesus Christ, trains us to put away these foolish things and to, to do these godly things. By the way, this should sound familiar. Let me use language from the Gospels. If you're going to follow after me, you need to pick up your cross and follow me. Same idea of putting off the old man, to use Paul's language, and putting on the new man. It's a constantly turning away from and turning to. We're constantly going to be worshiping something. We've got to turn away from the things we worship ourselves and worship the Lord. That's how this works. That's how we're trained. Friends, let me ask you, do you need grace? Do you need rescue, that great rescue from yourself? If you do, then Jesus is who you need. You should know that. Get to know the Son. Read the Gospels. I cannot tell you how many times I minister and counsel people, and I ask the basic questions, brother, sister, are you in the Word? And I'm not saying that because that's a legalistic thing, that that's what you do, that's how you become better. No. Are you in the Word of God? Are you getting to know the Son? Are you part of the life-imparting, faith-growing Word of God? Is that coming into you to renew your mind, to restore your soul, and to transform your life? Get to know the Son. Read of God's Word. Be changed by it. And that happens when you recognize, I'm a me monster, and you will rescue me from that, and you make your mind known to me here. But how does one get trained to love better? And, and I realize that we think of love as an emotion that we have or an experience that we share. So talking about being trained in love seems a bit odd, right? But if our marriage is friends, and you know this if you've been married for longer than a week, that if your marriage, your, your understanding of love is based on the emotional or experiential definition, when your emotions change or your experiences flux, there goes the foundation of your marriages as well. You see, but the Bible teaches us something radically different, right? The Bible teaches that, that I do want to say that love is an emotion, right? It's a great feeling to, to experience that. It is an experience, but the Bible radically reminds us that love is a person, Love is a who, as much as it is, if not more, a what. This is what John wrote in 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. He says in a few verses later that, that God is love. So 
just logically, if God is love and he sent his son, who according to Hebrews 1.3 is the exact representation of the very character and nature of God, and John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is God, and if God is love and Jesus walks amongst us, then friends, love itself walked amongst us, talked amongst us, lived amongst us. We know a lot about love, not because of an emotion or an experience, but because he was here with us. And that's why we want to get to know him by reading of him. But the million-dollar question is, how do we do this, right? If you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13, right? This is a common passage. If you've ever been to a wedding, you at least have heard 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let me give you a little bit of a tip. By the way, in 1 Corinthians 13, it has nothing to do with a wedding or a marriage. So I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but that's not what the context of 1 Corinthians 13 is about. As a little tip to two weeks from now, the context of 1 Corinthians 13 has everything to do with living together in a local church, by the way. It's very interesting that Paul talks about the the bedrock foundation of love, and he's talking about a local church, not a marriage. But again, as you'll see in a couple weeks, those two are very closely linked. 1 Corinthians 13, say again, verse 4. So, from our logical syllogism, if God is love and God sent his son, and his son, if the son is God, then the son is love as well, right? So here's a definition, verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I mean, just reading that, just as a husband, I'm like, here's where I failed. Failed here, failed there, right? I, mean, I, I, I hope you're thinking of that too. The question is, how do we do this? How do you do this if you're a husband or a wife? How do you do this? And there's more to say about love in the New Testament, but it's, it's not less than this. It's more than this, but it's not less than this. So how do we do it? If Christ is both the love and grace of God, and if Christ is at the center of the gospel message, and it's the gospel that trains us to love better, how does that work? And with our remaining time, I just want to, there's a lot we can unpack, and we will throughout the course of this series, but I just want to focus on this one verse. Again, it has nothing to do with marriage, but it has everything to do with marriage because it's our lives. And we all, Paul writes, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I don't want to make you nervous but, um, and, and remind you of English class, but you know, we learned a diagram in English, and I do the same in the uh, original languages. This is the heart of the sentence. Like, Everything else is a prepositional phrase, it's a modifier, it's a participle. The heart of what Paul is saying in this verse is, and we all are being transformed into the same image. He's talking about Jesus Christ. We all are being transformed, right? That's the reality, and he shows that it's an incremental work from one degree of glory to another. It's not instantaneous. If you become a Christian yesterday, you're not like Jesus Christ immediately today. It's a process. It's incremental. It's iterative. Sometimes it's slow and painful. Sometimes it's fast and joyful, but it's a process from one degree of glory to another. But, but okay, so if, if Paul is saying that the whole, by the inspiration of the Spirit, you're being transformed into Jesus Christ, and it's going to be a process, a gradual process, how then does it happen? Here's the first step, unveiled faces. Well, 
what that means basically in the original context, Paul's talking to Jews who trusted in the law, trusted in their Jewishness, and he's saying, no, 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 you have got to take that veil away. You cannot stand on your pretensions of being a, a righteous person, that, you're un, that, that you don't need God, that you're a good person. You've got to pull that pretension away. You've got to realize you're a sinner. You've got to realize you are that me monster. Pull that veil away and look honestly at what's going on. And here's the key, beholding, oops, yeah, the glory of the Lord. If you know anything about diagramming, beholding the glory of the Lord modifies being transformed. It shows you how you are being transformed. It's a participle of means. How are we transformed? By beholding the glory of the Lord, we'll be transformed from one degree of glory to another. How do we see the glory of the Lord? And that's one of the reasons I say read the Word, but probably one of the best places to see the glory of the Lord. And this is where I get back to, it's back to the gospel. When you look upon the cross, friends, if you contemplate the cross, and if it hasn't completely become a religious symbol to you, and you actually think about what that actually means, there is no way that you could behold the cross and feel any sense of self-righteousness there because you realize we are so wicked, we are sinners, that nothing less than, the God, than God the Son had to die in your place to redeem you. There's no room for self-righteousness there. You're not nearly as moral or righteous or as good as you might like to think you are in your marriage. But at the same time, when you look upon the cross, you have to understand as you contemplate what it means that you are so loved that God would freely give His only Son to redeem you. That you're more loved and more cherished and more valued than you absolutely could ever imagine, regardless of how you might feel in your marriage. That your value and your identity does not come from that, but from that. And so when we look at the cross, friends, there's no place for fear and insecurities and being small and petty. Because you're totally known and you're still loved. And there's no place to be proud about how good you are because you're totally known. And yet you're still loved. Because the cross challenges all of our notions. So the question is, how does beholding the glory of the Lord shown on the cross as one example help us love our spouse better? Or anyone better, by the way. Whether it's your neighbor, the person in the office, or someone at school. We can love them better, friends, because we're not looking to them as our ultimate source or fuel for love but rather someone God has called us to love, to show His love to. You can love your spouse better. You can love anyone better because they're not your ultimate source of love. You don't have to worry about whether or not you will get that love from them because it's already been given to you. Don't get me wrong. It is a blessing to receive love as well. But even if they don't return that love, you will not be lacking it. The Bible's very clear on this, 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation of our sins. Beloved, verse 11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
Love grows, not necessarily, friends, because you and I receive it. And you know this. Think about it. Love grows when you give it. Love doesn't grow because you're receiving it. Love grows because you are giving it away. Next week, I think I've just teed all this up to set us up for next week, how that love, how that transaction happens between husbands and wives. So I hope you come back for that next week. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and um, just recognize what's true of our marriages is true of just our lives in general. And Father, I just want to admit so often in my own marriage, I, I am being convicted that I am still the me monster, even though it's been 31 years ago that I cried out that you would rescue me from myself, I find myself all over my life. And Lord, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's true of everyone in this room. Would you mercifully help us, break us of our self-worship and put our worship upon you? Father, would you change our affections Would you fill our vision with the beauty and glory of your character? And we would stop being wooed by the things of this world. Father, that we would stop loving the thing that matters most by loving things that matter least. Father, we thank you that that is exactly why you sent your son. And we know that you will continue to do that work in our lives. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.